0: The views expressed in these conversations are those of the presenters and may not be endorsed by their respective school, company, or agency.
1: Welcome to this episode of Tech Lasso. I am Chris Hong, and today I am joined with my colleague, Mark Schwanz.
0: Hi, everybody. Good to be here.
1: And today we have a very interesting individual coming on to this episode. She is actually a product of Los Angeles County. She went to Los Angeles County Schools. We are going to be talking to Melanie Mendoza, who is an account representative from Microsoft, and just for full disclosure, she is also our account representative here at the Los Angeles County Office of Education, and she's going to share with us a little bit about her life, her story, and all the great things that Microsoft is doing to help schools. Melanie, could you go ahead and introduce yourself?
2: Hi, thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, like you said, Melanie Mendoza, product of Los Angeles, born and raised in East LA. I actually attended a Laco school, iPoly in Pomona, and that was such a great experience. The high school was actually on the campus of Cal Poly Pomona, so it made for a really easy transition for me into college life, and since then have been pretty much working in technology. I was grateful enough to start with Microsoft back in 2016. And have been working with the company off and on since then. The last year, our emphasis has been in education. And since I'm a resident of and a product of Los Angeles County, I've just had the really great fortune of being able to work with LA County Office of Education and all of the districts that you support as well.
1: Yeah, we appreciate your support. And I just want to know why is Microsoft getting into the education side so much more?
2: I think Microsoft has always been committed to education, but I have seen s- such a big support, especially since the pandemic. And that's really where I came back to Microsoft. So maybe that's just my perspective speaking there. Microsoft underwent their own digital transformation years ago, the software development and the world of software development. They had to face modernization challenges well before the rest of the you know, the industries had to. So Microsoft has a transformation framework that they've really clearly laid out. And a lot of schools with the pandemic were forced to rapidly digitalize. So Microsoft has really just been a a pillar of support in guiding a lot of schools through that transformation. I know Microsoft is committed to equipping students with future and life ready skills. So that's something that it's just been really cool to be a part of that commitment and to be able to deliver it, like on the ground floor to districts and to schools.
1: And you're saying this, this uh, transformation framework, what, what encompasses this framework?
2: So the transformation framework is a roadmap of not only the operational transformation that needs to happen, because a lot of school districts relied heavily on on on-premise infrastructure. And so moving a lot of that data and a lot of those models to the cloud, it's not very easy. It's not something that can happen overnight. And sometimes it takes a culture shift as well. So the framework lays out how to embrace that from a cultural perspective so that your teachers feel confident in moving to different products and feel confident using cloud-based solutions, but then also for the IT admins and the deployment assistance that they need to really roll out. And so it includes the support resources that we offer, the products that align really well to those roadmap goals, and then it just how to embrace those conversations with teachers and the training resources that we offer for educators as well.
0: So
1: you are going for a huge, all-encompassing support, everyone from the ground up, from students, parents, teachers, district staff, everybody that has any hand in schooling. Microsoft is supporting them.
2: Everybody in the school and outside of schools that support schools. So that includes nonprofit programs, after school programs. We support all of them.
1: I didn't realize how much you were doing in all honesty. And <laughs> and just listening, there's one question that I get asked a lot by families and friends. In your own words, could you explain what the cloud is?
2: So I think of the cloud as rented server space. And in, in, in a really simple way of thinking of it, because it's not something that exists in the air, per se, I I could see how a lot of people would think that it doesn't exist somewhere because of the name cloud. Basically, it's a hosted server space that you can either go through a public company like Microsoft, you can go through private companies that host their own servers, but it's a way of of renting basically data storage space so that you don't have to consume the costs and the maintenance that's associated with having an on-premise infrastructure.
1: So in other words, it's not it, it exists in a quote-unquote cloud, but it's actually stored at a physical location somewhere else, and we can just access it through the internet.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So if you wanted to host an application and you didn't want you didn't want to stand the server up to host that application you can rent cloud space and you can host it on azure and through through those options you no longer have to worry about you know simple things like electrical costs the physical costs of purchasing all of that hardware the licensing costs and making sure that it's updated so it's just a really easy way for people to to manage their data
0: and it also involves security, right? Because the district, if they're your customer that you're talking about, primary concern of the security of the data.
2: Oh, absolutely! And security is such a hot topic right now, especially in the education space. I mean, it's it's unfortunate that so many people are sensing vulnerabilities in education organizations or in districts. A lot of districts are being targeted. By ransomware, which is basically just a way of taking your data or putting some kind of control in place over that data and then literally asking for ransom for the return of it. And a lot of schools, because of their, they host very private data, they will pay to get that data back in some instances. And it's so unfortunate that that's a target right now. So when you offload, Data to a cloud, you you mitigate some of those security concerns because full ownership is is not on you. You're sharing that with with the provider.
1: And so you're talking about cybersecurity, and I know one of the biggest topics that we talk a lot about is how to protect yourself on the internet, how to protect your data and information. As someone who works in the industry, what tips or advice do you have for students, teachers, parents on how to protect their digital? identity?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, they say that users are the biggest vulnerabilities to any organization. So if you think that you don't have an impact in your school or your company's security, it's probably a misconception. Just basic things like not sharing your password, being very mindful of all the links that you click on, double checking to see where emails originate from, especially if they're maybe some an unusual email or they come from a sender that you don't have familiarity with. All of those simple practices will go a long way in protecting your data and the data of everyone else at your organization. And so those three, honestly, they're very simple tips, but that will really provide you a lot of Security and a lot, a lot of measures uh, in in protecting your your private security. There are also for students and teachers. There are classes that Microsoft offers. We have what's called the Learn for Educators program and the Virtual Academy. And through the Virtual Academy, you can look at cybersecurity courses, digital citizenship, which will teach you safe practices online, but also how to be courteous towards other people or other people in an online format. So those lessons can be really powerful for students.
0: I think security for students also has to do with the apps that they use. And I noticed Microsoft is taking a particular concern to Acquire apps like I'm taking a Flip, for example, that um, are built and they're meant to be used by students. I think as long as as uh, you know teachers and and students are using those apps that are no they know are approved that can keep their data secure, they're on a good path.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and most schools will have access to additional Microsoft apps that they can allow their students to interact with. So some schools choose to activate apps like Minecraft or Minecraft Education. Some schools do not permit those apps because they haven't reached that level of maybe user security that they would like to have before rolling out. In those instances, it really depends on your environment and your specific use cases with your students. But generally, Microsoft applications, we highly endorse them because we do add all of the security Privileges and make sure that all of our education applications are HIPAA compliant and they're not putting the security and safety of the students or teachers at risk.
1: I wasn't aware that your the Microsoft programs were HIPAA compliant. That's new information too. I, I figured they were COPA compliant.
2: Yeah, we have some interesting documentation that I can send over. Generally speaking, all of our applications meet those compliances. We do have a set of add-ons that you can purchase for security through your IT administrators that add extra compliance packages. But just out of basic compliance that most EDU institutions are concerned about, they don't have to have any additional features. And
1: you were talking about the Virtual Learning Academy earlier. How do people get access to this?
2: So the Learn for Educators, Microsoft's Virtual Academy as well, we have A couple different programs, a lot of the virtual academy courses are free for anyone to take advantage of. If you wanted to maybe get some fundamental skill sets in Azure and basic cybersecurity, like I mentioned earlier, digital citizenship, all of those virtual academy classes are going to be available at no additional cost. They do have extra programs specifically for educational organizations to apply for. And that could be so that you can turn maybe your district office into a testing center. But for the everyday person, the parent that wants to learn a little bit more about Microsoft 365, Excel, Word, any product, feature, solution, all of that information is available through the Virtual Academy at at no cost. You just need a Microsoft account, which are free.
1: And so your Microsoft account, for the everyday user, that's like an Outlook account or a Hotmail mm-hmm. account?
2: Yep, a Hotmail, Outlook. You can even associate your Gmail accounts with the Microsoft account. So you can even use that as your sign-in account, but you just need to have it associated.
1: The other thing you touched briefly on was Minecraft. Why? So I know My- Microsoft bought Minecraft way back when. Why?
2: Well, it... Probably had something to do with it being the best-selling game in the world. I think that had a big influence. From there, the company has supported it extensively. In 2009, they opened an education version of Minecraft. And so that's what I popularly support. The Java edition, the Bedrock editions, those are more of the everyday gamer people who play on the consoles. Education is going to be a version of Minecraft that's designed solely for students, and it's just a really great way to to teach people fundamentals, just basics of computer science and basic programming.
0: Yeah, you know, I I have to say I got introduced to Minecraft through the Java edition, mm-hmm. and once I saw the Education edition, you know, I, I didn't even know what to say because it was it was uh, exactly what I would have imagined.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you have the creative mode. So your students have access to an unlimited amount of resources within Minecraft for certain applications or for certain subjects. It really aligns perfectly because it can be expensive to conduct like experiments or just certain classroom activities. And those could be exercised at no cost in Minecraft.
0: Right. And as a as teacher, you can have so much more control or you know, design in terms of the kinds of activities that your students can do, it really makes it so much easier.
2: Yeah, definitely. It was actually designed by a teacher. It was a teacher who came home and he would play Minecraft all the time. He had a a little little girl, a daughter, about four years old, I think. And she spelled out her first word trying to chat on Minecraft because she had seen her father play, you know, every day as he would decompress after a long day at work in the classroom. And so he saw her spell up her first word for the first time through the game and realized hey there's there's a an intuitive aspect to this gameplay that maybe I can bring into my own classroom and I think like from there it's pretty much history <laughs> because right. he and had yeah
0: I've seen I've seen the way that kids can just so quickly adapt you know they're they're doing things so fast and so complex but then in the education version they're they're coding and they're just they're just really starting to learn code. They don't even know it, you know? It's great.
2: Yeah. I was actually just mentioning that to another district that will be throwing a Minecraft themed event. And I I told them when you see the look on a parent's face as they realize their student is programming right in front of them. And because of the I think because of the age difference, somebody from like even my generation or older, you hold such a value to coding and the ability to program and it's, To speak those software languages, automatically you connect it with opportunity. For a parent to see their student having that skill or learning that skill right in front of them, it's a really powerful moment. And you automatically see that register on the parent's face. They have this like incredulous look to them where they can't believe their kid is learning to code. And so, and then they see it that it's that easy because Minecraft, it it resembles a puzzle piece that you're putting together.
1: When it comes to the Minecraft and education, what makes it even more unique than the the retail version
2: so the coding is a great part you can integrate code builder into any lesson plan and you can teach block based languages tinker and scratch you can teach some of the more advanced programming languages like python and javascript it'll ask them to put together you know coding sentences so it'll give them those if and statements and ask them to logically put them together and then execute the code it's, it's just a really elementary way of teaching coding. But for me, I think the coolest part, and it's the part that I love showing teachers, is that a lot of the lesson plans that are pre-made and available online, they have an associated state standard. So if you wanted to find which lesson plan fits a certain standard for fifth grade language arts and you, you know what that standard and you can find a lesson plan that's been curated to specifically qualify for that standard. That for me is the coolest part because a teacher doesn't have to have that much of an understanding of the gameplay for them to look online and, and look for a lesson plan and to assign it to a student.
1: So you're basically saying that I know your one thing you're saying is like the teachers don't really have to understand how to play a game. But based on what you're also saying is they actually don't need to know how much how to code either, because the lesson plan and everything will help guide them step by step. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And and Mark, if you use this in your classroom, then you, you would know, you know, from firsthand experience, most of the students, especially since Minecraft has been around since 2009, most of the students have grown up playing Minecraft. The teacher doesn't have to have empirical knowledge in that matter. They don't have to know more than the student there. They just have to have the confidence to say, okay, I know how to assess if this activity was done or I know how to grade this upon completion.
0: Right. For example, they have a journal that's built into Mm -hmm. the Minecraft. It's attached to their user. So they can just continually make notes. It's 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 encouraging them to to write in context.
2: Yes. Yeah. The, the Quill and Journal, it's, that's a popular assessment
1: tool. So we talk about the classroom and Minecraft.edu. I've actually had friends talk to me about Minecraft. Is there a way for parents to get access to the Microsoft EDU version at all?
2: Access? Not necessarily. It has, you have to have a student login. For parents, there's not, because you have to have, and this is for the the safety of all the students that use it, you have to have a .edu or, or an organization email address to sign into it. And like I said, that's for the safety of the students. That's so that they can't communicate with people outside of the district. They can't communicate with people around the world, other adults. So you can only communicate with other students that are in your school or other people who have that same domain. So it's not something that I don't think Microsoft is going to open a a door just because the risk is so high because this is such a safe platform for students. If you already know how to play Minecraft and you have an understanding of the Java bedrock editions, then you can imagine the education edition is not going to be much different. It's just going to have a curriculum, a very strong curriculum integration. If it's somebody who has no experience in Minecraft and they want to have that peace of mind, Microsoft does have a website. It's education.minecraft.net. And there are videos, testimonials, examples. They can look at those lesson plans. They can find all of those guiding ideas and documents associated with each lesson plan. So all of that is freely available for anybody to look at.
1: So in other words, Minecraft, That's retail versus Minecraft.edu. The main difference between the two is the EDU just has curriculum built in and then it has a coding component. However, if people understand the the retail version of Minecraft enough, they could supplement with the resources.
2: Yeah. And there, there are other differences just in terms of the support that's available for each platform. You have a community of other global educators that are committed to Minecraft education. You have more support from the Microsoft team here if you're a school district and you're looking to start using Minecraft education versus purchasing the Java edition for, for students to use maybe like in an after school setting. There is a eSports integration with Minecraft education so that there is some kind of competition play for students to build off against each other.
1: So just listening to you talk, one of the biggest thing that keeps popping up is security preventing people from getting in, preventing people from getting out, protecting the students. I remember talking to you once about the standard of zero trust. What exactly is that?
2: Microsoft's zero trust standard, just to put it simply, because there are so many security experts here at Microsoft, and I'm more of a, a ground floor representative when it comes to this, Basically the zero trust approach is Microsoft's method of inspecting every packet, everything that comes into the districts or to any organization network. Microsoft zero trust approach is to test and secure every element within your network. It's incredibly robust. It adds an extra authentication layer. Microsoft zero trust approach is basically Everything needs to be retested in the network, continuously testing.
0: I was thinking too of the uh, example of add-ons and extensions in a, in a district that I was a part of. We had to pull, pull back on, on the amount of extensions and add-ons that were being allowed because they were, they were just all kinds of things that were, some of them were causing security risks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's something as well when, you know, talking about the framework that Microsoft has put out for digital transformation, that's something that's been identified as an agile roadblock by other companies. And so they've already come across it. It's it's that's why Microsoft highly endorses the framework is so that those mistakes aren't repeated in a more costly scenario think enterprise organizations might agree that they consistently battle with because it's not only a security risk, but it also could just lead to a management fiasco. It could be really tiring having to manage all of those add-ons and services.
1: So I'm going to ask you the big question that's been on everyone's mind since Mm -hmm. November. Why is Microsoft so heavily involved in generative AI, especially like ChatGPT that was just recently integrated into Bing?
2: Oh yeah. And it's it's going that it won't stop at Bing. We will integrate AI into our other solutions as well for the better, though. So I think Microsoft's investment with AI has gone even before that. If we break down what is AI. I mean, obviously everyone knows the artificial intelligence part, but beyond that, what does that mean? To me, I look at AI as just automation. And so having a really intellectual automation process that doesn't need a lot of manual oversight to it. No AI will completely replace human labor as far as in my opinion so i don't think microsoft i think microsoft's investment in ai makes a lot of sense because it's just making our products better more intuitive and easier to use i'm excited personally to see how our how our products evolve
0: do you, do you think that the integrations will just come out gradually i know they don't want to uh, shock us too, too.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i probably will be the last to know I say this all the time, but we're the biggest secret spillers, and so I I tend to not know a lot of like product news before it's released to the public. But I I do see them starting to integrate with other products beyond Bing. For for me, that was just a natural partnership. The power of AI, or just like I said, intelligent automation with the indexing of the internet, to me, that's just, it goes hand in hand, because you already ask Bing, you know, so, so many things. And so it, it's, it, it was a really natural progression, in my opinion.
1: The purpose is to help make life easier. It's not meant to make it more difficult. It's meant to help make life easier. I think like the example yeah. I saw recently is Microsoft is releasing a new program that I can best refer to as Clippy, the clip art on steroids,
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone loved Clippy, too, right? Clippy interacted with you. It mm. asked you if you needed prompts. That was at a time where where we looked at a bot and didn't see it as a bot. We saw it as an assistant to a program. And so, yeah, I definitely. I think it's it's just like that if if especially if you interact with it positively, like people did with Clippy. It could definitely be an assistance. So instead of having to look around in a taskbar to find out how to redesign your Word page, you can just ask Clippy. And in that time, it would take you to research that information. That's now returned to you, and you can invest that into writing or into creating something. You know that you were going to do.
0: I I was um, you know I was aware that with tools like Designer in Word and PowerPoint, for example, it's already there, it's making suggestions based upon what you're creating. So I see it as just improving on that process.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it, imagine if you could ask designer to design in a very specific way or to create a very specific type of presentation instead of you having to take the time to look into the steps and completing it and skilling up yourself to have that, that product in place where it already does that for you. To me, that's exciting. It takes out mm. some of the remedial work that we don't like doing anyway.
1: You were on the cusp of being, you're you're a millennial, but you're also on the cusp of being Gen Z. So you're on the tail end of being a millennial and the beginning end of a Gen Z. What was life like growing up? My assumption is the fact that you're working for Microsoft is that you grew up with a lot of technology yourself.
2: I did, yeah. I actually was lucky enough to have a parent to really recognize the power of technology and just the opportunity to equalize through technology. I had an email address when I was five years old, which for me was pretty unheard of. Friends growing up, they didn't have a computer at home. I don't think most people really started to have computers at home until the late 90s. In that mid-90s time, having my own email address, that was really unheard of. And speaking to friends that are around my age now, I'm realizing that that was very uncommon. And so my dad really recognized the importance of having a computer and just an education in general. I think that was really common for his generation. He grew up in East L.A. and all of his brothers and sisters who had children, they ended up investing in education for their for their kids. So me and all my cousins, we went to private school. And that just, I had a computer class uh, from the time I was in second grade, a designated computer class. And so I did not grow up being a stranger to technology. And then when I went to iPoly, they were very much a technology-focused school. They might not have had all of the access on campus at the time when I went there, but they had brought in certain programs, like they had a program from the American Film Institute. And they taught students how to edit movies and edit music on the the uh, on the computers that were provided there, and then had instructors from AFI teach us. And so programs like that, I mean, they just strengthened my love of technology. Really, growing up in in East LA as like a, I guess a, a late millennial. I don't I I don't I don't really consider myself too much of a Gen Zer. I feel so so old compared to Gen Z, but so young compared to other millennials. So I guess you're right. It is right on that cusp.
1: So first things first is embrace the youngness because you to <laughs> get to a point where it's like, man, I wish I was that young again. Uh, That's true. It's so very true. And just listening to you talk, how common was technology in your classrooms? Let's say from your high school classes, how common was the use of technology in school?
2: For my high school classes? So this is where I think maybe some of that affluence might set in because from my middle school and my my elementary school, because I went to a private school, all of my friends and peers, they had computers at home and they came from an educated family who already knew how important it was going to be to know how to use a computer and to use technology. When I went to iPoly it was a little different everyone came from a different background so right off the bat you didn't have that like socioeconomic kind of similarity between all of all of the students there so some of my friends did not have computers at home they only had access to the classroom computers or you had to go use the library if you needed a computer ipoly itself at that time did not have a lot of funding from my understanding so it it definitely wasn't like a one-to-one student device ratio. I think there were maybe a handful of computers in the back of each classroom, if that. And I, I think it's still the same. I think they were all Macs at the time. I, th- I don't think that's really changed much um, with iPoly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they did stress technology education, but it wasn't delivered. It was definitely incorporated in project assignments. So it was kind of an interesting, I think, transitory phase for iPoly at that time, because had they had the funding, I think maybe that they receive now, they had the goal to bring that kind of education to their students. They provided it in alternative ways. Like I said, with AFI, that program, the Film Institute program. You know, just with, they have other projects that were based in technology, or you had an, a technology alternative route that you could take for that project if you liked.
1: It sounds like it was a little bit more intentional at the high school and how technology was implemented and integrated. It wasn't so much, here's a computer in front of you, you just need to use it. It was more like, no, we're going to use it intentionally.
2: Yes. Yeah, definitely.
1: Talking to you, you actually went to Cal Poly Pomona. What did you study there?
2: I studied philosophy. One summer I took my intro to philosophy, which satisfied one of my GE requirements. It was an amazing class. I didn't really know what I wanted to do before that. And I, I knew I didn't really want to go into computer science as a degree. And I didn't really want to go into technology as an IT administrator, or as a management provider.
1: You didn't want to be an IT administrator. You didn't want to do, you know, all these different things in the tech field. Even being a philosophy major, you would not have thought you would have gone into a tech field. And yet here you are in the tech field. Why?
2: I went into technology. My first job, I had this experience. It was through Barnes and Noble, and they had just recently created their Nook devices. And so this was an e-reader. It, it was a competitor to the Kindle. And so they asked people to go into different Barnes and Nobles and to stand in the front and to, you know, show people the device and demonstrate it. And I think that was probably the most just amazing experience in technology I've had almost to this day. You see people who have such a passion and such a relationship with reading and to see the power of being able to transform your entire library into one handheld device And this was revolutionary for people. This was back in 2010, I believe. And so this wasn't this was when iPods were still not everybody had a smartphone at that time. It was it was at a period of technology where it wasn't becoming an an, an accessory to your everyday life. So for a lot of people, this was revolutionary for them the ability to take any book that you love with you anywhere you go and to not have to carry it around and to just have it on one thing, to be able to download it for free and to put it on that device. The look on somebody's face, it, re- it reminded me of when my dad found YouTube for the first time. Right? He was like, what? I get to watch things from how long ago? And it was like hearts in his eyes. That is what I saw at Barnes & Noble. And so after that, I kind of thought, I want to work in technology. From there, I moved to Austin because I heard that Austin was becoming the next Silicon Valley and started working with Microsoft.
1: So what I heard out of your, your story is the fact that you love to help people and you love that technology as a tool that can make people be happy, be excited. And like you can see your passion just listening to you talk and, and all the meetings I've ever been in with you. You're very passionate about the product and what it can do and make to make your life easier.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's, it could be, it could be very heartwarming. It could be uh, beautiful when you see somebody realize that they can accomplish so much more with a simple tool set that maybe has always been there. To me, that's really, that's the kind of stuff that I love doing is just showing the, the simple things on what's already available to help you improve and help you get to your goals faster and seeing that light bulb that goes off when people realize it. Yeah. That, that's, that's the coolest part.
1: So I have two more questions on my end. The first one is Microsoft has a training or something in Irvine. Could you talk about that a little bit and how can educators or someone who wants to go check it out, be able to check it out?
2: Yeah, we have an MTC center. It's called the Microsoft technology center. The center has, I think they have six popular features that they offer. They do strategic planning. So if you wanted to maybe discuss ways to improve phone collaboration through Teams, you can set up a strategic planning session there. They offer hackathon events. So if you wanted to organize a hackathon for, you know, specific product or specific school project, we could do that there. They have a hands-on laboratory. So they have an experience set up for just different industries. So they'll have, let's say, a retail experience. And they have um, a set of lockers that are using Power BI and other tools to space to scan your face and to to put in your information into the locker, you know, any of your possessions into the locker. And so they have a retail experience for that. They have one for purchasing um, a latte. I think like you can make a coffee out of some of the IOT features that they've designed that you can interact with there. They have a HoloLens experience so you can play um, certain virtual reality games on the HoloLens. We can schedule if you just wanted to have a, a business meeting there one day um, and you wanted to host it at the MTC. That's something that I've also seen some folks do. They don't cost anything. I think the only cost that incurs if you wanted to have lunch there, and then the organization, you would just pr- purchase the lunch, you know, for the, the people that you wanted to host there.
1: The other question I have, it's kind of twofold. What tips or advice do you have for educators and what tips or advice do you have for parents on how to support their students with the use of technology in the classroom?
2: Oh, that is such a good question. I would say my tip for educators, and this is just something that I've seen just from my experience, like I said, working with enterprise teams and working in education, I do see most cases one of the biggest roadblocks to adopting a new framework or to transforming digitally has to be with personal preference. A lot of the times if the teachers just don't want to learn a new product, which I completely understand because I don't think teachers now are being paid astronomically higher than they were When I was growing up, so I know that the demands are increasing and that doesn't always match the benefits, the compensation that comes with that role. And so to add another request, to add another product that you need to learn, another assignment on top of all of that, I would never ask that because I know how difficult it is already, especially with the evolving landscape. I have so many teachers in my family and it's just, it's an incredibly difficult and honorable thing to do to 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 teach the next generation. At the same time, there aren't cultural changes without that kind of, or with that kind of reluctancy. And so a lot of the times when we want to implement something really cool and new for the students, and I, I understand it's something new to learn. It's sometimes intimidating because it's gaming, but it's usually because of the teachers, if we do or don't do it. And so just being a champion of those products, it goes such a long way internally. And if anybody has any desire to get more interested there, that's what I love to do. I love to help out folks like that, people who have those kind of instructional goals and who are visionaries when it comes to implementing those solutions. And then for parents... I would say, oh, gee, see, this is the harder, harder one for me to advise on. So for parents, okay, so for parents, I would say that I truly believe that digital literacy is as important as traditional literacy. I, I really identify it as being the next equalizer in society, just being mindful yourself of the information that you're consuming in hopes that your, your child consumes that same information It's so, to me, it's so critical.
0: Just wholeheartedly agree with those two statements. Thank you. Thank you for that.
1: Just want to say thank you for coming on, Melanie. We appreciate your time. I will put Melanie's contact in the show notes. If you ever have any questions you want to reach out to her, feel free to reach out to her. Thank you, Melanie.
2: Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mark. This is such a cool bucket list moment for me. So thank you.
0: The Tech Lasso podcast is produced by the ITO coordinator team. We are part of the technology learning and support services department at the Los Angeles County Office of Education. This work is licensed under a creative commons attribution 4.0 international license and use our response form to be considered for inclusion in future episodes. Let us know what you're thinking. Also, share your thoughts via Twitter at LACO underscore ITO and on Facebook at LACO Follow us on LinkedIn at LECO-ITO. Thank you.